back in WAGU Studios for episode four of Dinner with a Side of Culture podcast. And once again, we were able to enjoy some great tacos from Bandito Burrito, Taco Tuesday, food truck style on College Hill. Uh, tonight, we're going to be discussing a range of subjects revolving around transportation, the media, and different modes of transportation involving bicycles, buses, and walking. We have three guests tonight. We have Madeline Carey, Eric Ginsberg, and Mark Kirstner. So first off, we have Madeline Carey. She is the Assistant Trails Director for the Parks Department of Greensboro. And she will probably be able to say that with less of a tongue twister than I can. So I'll pass the mic over to her. Well, um, I'm the Assistant Trails Director for Greensboro Parks and Recreation. Uh, I've been with the city about six years. I'm a UNCG alumni. Um, my Bachelor of Science is in Geography, so I'm really glad to be here tonight. And one thing we always like to ask is how long you actually have been in Greensboro, or if you're from Greensboro. Oh yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not from Greensboro. I'm from Charlotte originally. I came here to come to UNCG, and I've been here ever since. So about 11 years. So Madeline, when you were at UNCG, <laughs> did you ever use the trails around Greensboro? I did a little bit. I used to live on Friendly Avenue, and um, our house backed up to the Lake Daniel Greenway, but I never knew the exact expanse of the network that we had in Greensboro. I, I really just saw it here and there, but really only used the one right close to me. Our second guest of the evening is Eric Ginsberg, a name that you probably recognize if you read Triad City Beat, uh, one of our great weekly publications that you can get here in the Triad, and Eric is the associate editor for Triad City Beat. Correct. That's correct. <laughs> how long? How long you been editor for Triad City Beat? Um, I helped co-found Triad City Beat, which is about to turn a year old. Um, so that's the name I created for myself when we started the paper, based on what I was going to be doing. Uh, and before that, I worked for a different weekly paper for about three years. And last but not least, we have Mark Kirstner, the director of planning for Part Piedmont Authority for Regional Transportation. All right, best said out of his mouth rather than mine. Yeah, uh, thank you, Ryan. Yeah, I've been with Part since uh, 2008 and originally from Charlotte as well. And um, then came to Greensboro in about 1986, left in the mid-90s for a few years and lived over in the Triangle area and then came back to Greensboro. So um, I've lived all my life in North Carolina except for one year, but I have lived in all three urban areas. So both Madeline and Mark are both from Charlotte. Growing up in Charlotte, did you all uh, tell us a little bit about the transportation system there? Now it's one of the most advanced systems in North Carolina, if I'm, if I'm not wrong. So what was your experiences you know, earlier on before relocating to Greensboro? Well, I guess you know, my, my experience was driven by when I was in junior high school. That's when um, the schools were being desegregated. So I was bused on a school bus quarter of the way around the town from my neighborhood into a black neighborhood. Uh, that's my memory of transportation uh, in Charlotte. And of course, it's by no means, uh, I mean, that was back in the 60s, by no means is the transportation system anywhere close to what, what it is today. I realize, Eric, we didn't get your Greensboro residency. How sure. long have you been around? Uh, I moved to Greensboro in 2006 to go to Guilford College, and I stayed after I graduated, and I grew up outside of Boston. Hence the Red Sox hat. That's right. 
So, Madeline, you have, I assume you had a little bit of a different experience and exposure with public transportation in Charlotte. How long has it been since you left? Um, I graduated from Northwest School of the Arts in 2003 uh, in Charlotte, and I, I did have a significantly different experience, um, but sort of the same. Uh, because I went to a magnet school, I spent about two hours every day, uh, twice a day, on the bus, um, getting bus from Matthews onto the complete other side of Charlotte. Basically, you had to have a car to get anywhere, and uh, a lot of the things that I wanted to do were in the center city. So I spent a lot of time hitching rides and trying to get from here to there and vowed I would never live in the suburbs again where I felt like I, I couldn't go anywhere on my own and couldn't be independent. Did that kind of lead to your, uh, what was your major in college? What <laughs> led to you where you are now? Uh, well, I came to UNCG as a theater major. Uh, surprisingly, but um, that didn't really work out. I decided I wanted to have a solid job when I got out of school and got distracted playing Ultimate Frisbee, and that was sort of how I got into the recreation side of things. And I just liked learning about geography and conservation and biology, and so that's sort of where um, my field took me, and uh, I ended up interning with Guilford County and GIS, and so GIS and recreation sort of merged for me to help me land that job that I have now uh, as the assistant trails director. And do you kind of see the trails as more recreation or do you see them as a, uh, a viable transportation option? Is it, are they connected enough now that you can move around and use them for that purpose? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you can use them for, for both. Uh, it depends on where you want to go and what you want to do. We have over 50 miles of interconnected hiking and mountain biking trails around our city lakes. We have multiple miles of uh, paved greenways for you to ride your bike or walk. You know, we've come a long way just in the last 10 years of connecting major thoroughfares to destinations, and there's a lot more in store. Was that the motivation in terms of Greensboro's uh, investment in improving uh, the trails? Was, was it more so under the aspect that they feel like people are healthier and happier it'll make a healthier happier city or was it to provide better connectivity between the neighborhoods what was kind of the motivation that I think initially you know trails were just kind of a nice to have our trails division got started in 1997 and you know we added where we could um, there was sort of a turning point where um, some staff sort of realized the connection between our trail system and recreation and transportation. And a relationship was started with uh, Greensboro's Department of Transportation. And uh, we started working together because, you know, GDOT has a lot deeper pockets than uh, Parks and Rec. And we felt like we could align with them to better serve the community in providing, you know, off-road transportation alternatives for people. And uh, we aligned with GDOT on some bonds and we were able to secure a lot of bond funding to pay for several greenway projects that have happened and are in the works. And Eric, you're not originally from Greensboro. Uh, you're from Boston, is that correct? Uh, in the suburbs. So, so <coughs> what, was, what was your experience in your hometown with public transportation and trails? Was it something that was regularly a part of your life? Uh, no, growing up in the suburbs, we needed a car to get anywhere. But I did regularly go into Boston using the Mass Bay Transit system. Uh, and so I, I definitely have experience 
you know, growing up riding the, the train more than anything else, but not in terms of using um, trails for anything other than, than recreation as a kid. Uh, but when I moved here, and most of my experience here is, has also been car-based culture. Uh, it's, my experience is, in general is that Greensboro is a very sprawled city, uh, and that I've often, because of the kind of work that I do and also because of the, the way that the city is laid out, I, I usually need a car to get around uh, throughout the day, even if there are legs of what I do that I could do on a bike or using public transit. Out of the three of you, if you could choose to live the majority of your days without a car, would you do so? Probably not. <laughs> I have two small children, and I know that there are, you know, moms out in Portland that bust their kids around on those bus bikes, but I don't know if I'm that hardcore. <laughs> you know, and then I don't think I'd ever be without a car, but I, I think, uh, and I moved to downtown Greensboro sort of trying to, to live what I've been trying to preach um, and enjoy that experience of not having to be as reliant upon uh, the car than, than I have in the past. Yeah, I would certainly like to be less reliant as well and live close enough to downtown that that it would be a viable option for, for many aspects of my life. And kind of thinking about and, uh, you know, talking about your first experiences with public transportation and during your your earlier days, teenage years, college years, you were probably firsthand experiencing the the growth of the suburbs and kind of the change from downtown urban environments to uh, what we kind of commonly have today. Uh, from your family's experience, did, did you make any sort of move or what was any kind of transitions in your childhood from a downtown to the suburbs or no, I guess, you know, at at the time that um, I was living there, it was a suburb. Now it feels a whole lot more like it's just part of the city where I live. Um, but we were still just, you know, three or four minutes uh, away from downtown, down Freedom Drive. So I do have a lot of experiences about getting downtown, uh, but, they, you know, they were, they were always driving. Um, not even sure if the bus system came out to where we were. Uh, the time I was growing up there. The second big experience would have been when I was at Chapel Hill. And, of course, there, um, while I did have a car uh, on campus there, riding the bus became, you know, sort of a way of life um, in terms of getting around town. But even then, I think you think about it just a little bit differently as, you know, because everyone's doing it. You know, all your friends um, and, and everyone else is doing it. So I don't think you normally think about it as the experience of just trying to get around and, um, as part of your daily activities. And for the listeners that don't know, what is the reason behind the Chapel Hill free buses? How well, is that possible? Yeah, how is it possible? Well, I, th- I think they certainly get a lot of different funding from the university and capitalize on that. Um, there's also a lot of studies that show that it takes a lot of money to collect the money, count the money, put it in a vault. Um, and I, I think there are some studies that would show that it's not worth it. Fare recovery in public transit is, you know, anywhere between 15 to 20 percent of, of the overall cost. So while that is somewhat significant, um, you know, some places have found that, that free is better. Plus, in that situation where congestion truly is a problem anything that you can do to get more people on 
the system um, certainly helps. That's that's the only place in the state that has free bus transit. As, is, is, that's, as, as far as you know. As far as I know, that's okay. correct, yeah. There are also current discussions about uh, adding a fare in Chapel Hill. Okay. Talking about, you know, the, the idea that it's cheaper to actually have a free bus and try to collect, I understand, you know, accounting and uh, taking it to the bank and securing it off the bus. Uh, Greensboro has recently uh, unveiled a new product, if you will, the GoPass, mm -hmm. that will kind of take over how we know it, you know, having to pay $2.50 for the exact change. That's a, a pretty big barrier. Not many people walk around with mm -hmm. $2.50 in their pocket. So I'm not exactly sure that many people widespread actually are aware of the GoPass. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like it was really released? Is it going through a pilot phase? What's the status of the GoPass? Well, you know, to be honest with you, Ryan, we heard about it as it was being announced to the public as well. And, you know, while we have a, a relationship with all the transit systems in the region, uh, it was kind of new to us too. But I agree, especially the demographic uh, that GTA targets, they don't have cash just hanging around in their pocket. So I think it's a great thing uh, that they've done. And I know you and I have had discussions before that they really need to be pumping that information out uh, and making it making it more known. While I said earlier, you know, it may cost money to collect money. I'm also a pretty firm believer that you, things are valued when you have to pay something for them, even though it's a little bit. So um, uh, I commend them for making it easier for people to um, to ride by you know doing away with having to have change in their pocket. Eric, was it something that they tried to release out to the press? Was it something they? actively tried to promote or was it sort of a, a surprise or hidden thing to you as well um honestly i remember receiving an email about it and i uh, and i couldn't tell you whether the email came from you or from them okay, <laughs> okay. uh so i'm i'm uh, i'm aware of it uh and i generally don't because of the kind of outfit that we are we generally don't cover things that are have already been thoroughly covered by the, the daily or the other papers in town um so i haven't written about it but I certainly haven't seen, uh, you know, I drive by buses all the time and there are ads for uh, Greensboro Police Department or the uh, advertising other aspects of, of the transportation system, but I haven't seen any sort of like bus wraps or anything, any sort of outreach like that. I mean, I don't know what, I don't ride the bus for work, so I don't, I don't know how aware the riders are, but my, my perception would, would certainly be that if the goal is to target new ridership that that message isn't getting out and you know mark you tried to start for the last three years the transit alliance the piedmont is that the correct terminology yep transit alliance of the piedmont transit alliance of the piedmont and you would consider that a grassroots initiative yeah i mean there wasn't a citizens advocacy group around transit uh here locally and so Somewhat work, somewhat personal, and you know, kind of on a three-year mission to get that really, really kicked off and off the ground. And I think it's got some very strong citizen leadership now, and um, I'm hoping that they're going to be able to, you know, raise awareness about public transit here in, in the whole region. What was the biggest challenges you faced over the past three years to get that more out in the open and, and have people to, to jump on board with you? I think it's primarily because of the culture surrounding public transit here 
but also in the South in general. I mean, Greensboro is, is really no different than where Charlotte was, you know, 15 or 20 years ago with this transit system or any s- Southern city. Only as you grow up, do you become a little bit more mature and, and understanding about some of the other quality of life issues uh, that you don't have. So I think that was that was the biggest thing was having people recognize the broader benefit. Uh, there's been a number of people that have kind of coming in and out of the group, but all sort of, you know, passionate about it. But uh, finding people that were passionate but also had the time to put into it, that's been the biggest challenge. One of the main things that you and I have discussed is the difference between need riders and choice riders. And I've mm-hmm. recognized that from a political perspective, it might be a little bit of a faux pas to try to put funding towards something that would appeal towards those that uh, could afford other methods of transportation. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, what benefits would it have to GTA and to the city as a whole if they were to make efforts to attract more choice riders into the system? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one thing that I'll start with what we don't have uh, that also is kind of works against this is we honestly don't have a lot of traffic congestion. You know, both Eric and Madeline come from places um, and I've lived in places where traffic congestion is an issue and that was certainly a driving force in the triangle for them to sort of start to beef up uh, their transportation but you know there are a lot of really being able to save money and spend less money on automobile travel Uh, that money because we're not a nation of savers that money is going to go back into the local economy you can also look at some safety, um, you know, concerns if you're talking about a system that's able to transport you to entertainment centers, you know, within the city, downtown, um, and, and places such as that. So I think that's a benefit, too. I think there's a social aspect that people don't really grasp onto. While a lot of people do like to get on the bus and sit there and put their headphones on or, or uh, take a nap, particularly on some of our long runs you know there is a a community feel about you know being at the bus stop being at the terminal uh riding the bus together and then there's just that whole aspect of not having to worry about driving um and just being able to sit back and let someone else do the driving the final thing i would say quickly is that i think there's a certain expectation that as if we're going to become more metropolitan that when people come visit Greensboro, if you come get off the train, you don't have those same options. If you certainly fly into the airport, you're looking at a $25 taxi ride, and that or Uber is. Now, we do go to the airport, but our service is really limited you know, during the day. So I think there's a certain expectation that when people come in from other places that, um, that you have some of those amenities uh, related to transportation that we just don't have. Something that sort of ties in with the the need versus uh, need versus choice drivers or riders is that it really reminds me of something I know, I'm sure you were familiar with what Ryan was doing with uh, People's Transit and that being sort of a social way of making a choice to to get on the bus. People's Transit was something that Ryan started for a couple months uh, in the late summer, where he uh, worked with a local transportation company that had a double decker bus. Mm-hmm which made things very unique. Um, and people were like, oh, wow, I want to get on that. And primarily it was used to transport people, you know, the younger demographic that was uh, going and enjoying the nightlife of Greensboro to get them around safely mm-hmm. and conveniently. 
And I don't know if what you thought about that or if that is something that is, is being discussed in, uh, in, for a future. I thought it was a fantastic way to demonstrate how you could attract different riders with transit and providing people choice. And I think that's, that's the key word these days is just having choices, whether it's trails and biking in terms of, of a way to commute uh, or walking as part of your commute. You know, we like to say every transit ride begins on walking or biking. Uh, Got to walk to the bus stop, bike to the bus stop. So those types of amenities are equally as important in creating, you know, some sort of quality of life. You know, the Greensboro system, through through no one's real fault, is the old school southern system of moving people from poor, lower income areas to some places of employment, and it's not designed at all to move you around town otherwise. And that's one thing that I think Ryan was helping people realize is that, hey, there there may be a need here, but it all comes back to funding. And parts of service, again, is completely different. So not really in on the discussions about what GTE might be thinking about, but I'm, I'm hoping that they're beginning to see the light, uh, especially with uh, the generation that, um, that I have here beside me uh, in terms of what they want. Uh, and what they need out of the city. You you all ran an article recently in Triad City Beat, the people of the Triad, discussing uh, many different people in the area that move between the different cities and, and really selling the fact that we are citizens of the Triad and not just Greensboro, not just High Point, not just Winston. And that's something that uh, Mark and I had talked about for a long time. And you, around you all's office, what was kind of the motivation for you all starting to cover that topic and think about the area in that way? One of the things that we uh, really see as part of our mission is to uh, help people see the triad as a unit. And by that, when we say the triad, we, we actually mean the points of it, just the three cities. And so that's been a, an, an element of what we've been doing all along and, and is actually written into our mission statement as well. But the, the so we had discussed doing something like the cover story, that you, the Citizens of the Triad cover story that kind of highlighted different specific people and their experience um, connecting the different cities. And But it, it ties into so many different elements of what we're writing about anyway. So we have a cover story uh, for our... Uh, February 4th issue of the paper that's it's all about people talented people that lived in this area that have moved away Uh, and so the intention was to pick a couple of people from each city who had come from each city or or spent a significant amount of time in each city and then left and gone to places like Philadelphia or Austin or Durham or or New York is is where the majority of the people we interviewed ended up landing just by chance and something that we realized as we were writing it is that the, a lot of these people that we had talked to, you know, one is an artist who lives in Durham, and we knew her as a Greensboro artist and didn't even realize until we called to interview her that she grew up in Winston-Salem and went to School of the Arts. And then I interviewed uh, a couple that I had never met before, but we were looking at them as a Winston-Salem couple. To, you know, and we, we, we drew up a cat- categories to make sure that the different cities were being represented well. And, and they were in the Winston-Salem category because they were a big part of the arts community in Winston-Salem before they moved to Philadelphia. And then we, I realized as I was interviewing them that they both went to UNCG 
she grew up near Guilford College, and he had grown up out of state and then moved down. And they, they actually met in Greensboro and lived here for several years before moving away to Asheville and then coming back to Winston-Salem for work. So I tell that story just to illustrate the point of, like, even when we're not looking to, to kind of uh, hit you over the head with that point that this is a, a region that's interconnected. It comes out anyway um, because we didn't make it up. It's like it's actually the lived experience of a lot of people here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they moved away. That you know, folks that we wish would stay here. So. Yeah, that's a big part about some of the focus we've been having on this show is for one, why why do people if they decide to stay in the area, why do they decide to stay in the area? And a lot of times it is because of jobs. And if not, you know, the complaints we always hear. And mm-hmm. that's what motivates a lot of people to, to leave. Is that something that you've been doing this story? What was main factors for people leaving? Yeah, my takeaway was that the main reason people left were professional reasons, generally speaking. I mean, there were a couple of people that were like, I, you know, I grew up here and I just got to get out. I got to go do something new. And as someone that doesn't live where he grew up, I think that's a a good experience for people to have. But I think my takeaway from it is that the people and the culture, however, you know, as broadly as you want to define that, which I would include, you know, all of these issues that we're talking about with transit as part of culture, but um, so not just, you know, music and food, but, but also everything about the quality of life. But I think those are the things that make people want to stay. And then work is what enables people to actually do that. So if I didn't have the opportunity to work at Triad City Beat, if I wanted to continue being a journalist, I would probably need to leave this area to do that. And so my job enables me to stay here, but the main reason I want to stay here, I mean, luckily I love my job and that that helps, but the main reason I want to stay is all of those other reasons. But yeah, so it makes sense that we found that a lot of people left for professional reasons or, you know, I would... I would define that broadly too. Like some people left to go to a graduate program that didn't, you know, it was a better graduate program that doesn't exist here or there was a job opportunity or something like that. Triad City Beat is, has made a definite mark in over the last year. They've had a lot of really uh, thought-provoking articles and tackled subjects that haven't really been seen in uh, the weekly newspapers. And obviously city papers, you know, Greensboro News and Record and High Point Enterprise. It's not really their format. Jack and I were talking about this the other day. The The best way that I know to kind of explain Tried City Beat in my head is in a New York Times fashion. Can you kind of just tell me from your point of view what you all's journalistic approach is and what your, your motivation for where you're coming from is um, each week with the paper? Sure. You got, you're going to have to stop me because I think I'm probably going to start rambling with the, with a question like that. But um, we wanted to start a paper like this because um, we feel like there are, are certain aspects of journalism that weren't that other that other papers really weren't taking up that torch. So one major component of that is investigative journalism. And then there are other lighter things like there's there is no weekly newspaper in the triad with a sports column uh, prior to to our paper. There is, there was no, uh, we didn't do this right out of the gate, uh, but we are now the only triad paper with a, a column about booze, drinking, you know, beer, wine, spirits, etc. So there are these different pieces that we kind of saw that were missing, and some of them are, are on the lighter end of the spectrum, and some are, are much heavier and more serious. Um, but we wanted to be a part of something that 
we thought was authentic and spoke to people's actual experiences. And the thing about working for a weekly newspaper rather than a daily is that we are not the paper of record. So it is not incumbent upon us to report every time there is a, a shooting or a massive car accident or something like that. We are able to, to choose and be a little more selective in terms of the stories that we actually run. Um, so we get to have a lot of those conversations about what is important, what is not being discussed, what needs to be focused on, which the, the daily newspapers do get to do to an extent, but they also have this other responsibility that we frankly don't think that we have. We think that we have other responsibilities that, that, that we share with them too about informing people and making sure that important issues are discussed or holding people accountable. But um, not having as many responsibilities, I, th- I think, allows us to focus on those more specifically. And I, I hope that we're succeeding. Another thing Ryan and I talked about early on that Tri-City Beat did, and this falls into sort of that investigative reporting or shining the light on and something that is happening that people, you know, are maybe afraid to talk about. And that was a lot of the uh, stories you've done throughout the year on High Point. I mean, I can say that that, I mean, that is definitely a very intentional decision. And I probably should have said that out of the gate, too. But at the paper where I used to work, we knew that we weren't covering High Point. And so we made this um, really tokenistic gesture of saying every year we're going to have, and we, were, we put it in September, we said we're going to have a High Point issue um, where we're going to write about things in High Point. Uh, and we decided when we were forming Triad City Beat that, that uh, it was really important not to do things that way. So High Point does not get equal treatment in our paper. It's much smaller. It doesn't, uh, we try to do more proportional coverage. But our news section every week, there is one news story for Greensboro, one news story for Winston-Salem, and one for High Point. There's all, that High Point is always there uh, in the news section. And then it also obviously gets cultural coverage too. But uh, just like people in Greensboro um, ig- ignore Winston-Salem and, and and vice versa with uh, Winston-Salem towards Greensboro, everyone kind of ignores High Point. But it too is is part of this region. So, I, I mean, it's been really interesting for me also because I knew almost nothing about High Point um, before we were doing it. And I would def- I was, I will admit that I was quick to, to roll my eyes and groan <laughs> at the idea of being like sent there on an assignment. Um, but kind of building that into the ethos of what we do, um, I've learned so much, mostly from reading my colleague Jordan Green's articles, but I, I've had the pleasure to do some myself too. And it's eye-opening. There's so much going on there that I don't think anyone really realizes. I know I was just going to throw in, as a former reader of the News and Record, I mean, their sports section was so horrible that I just really sort of stopped looking at the paper daily and then cut it down to the Sunday paper. And after a couple of months, I just realized I wasn't even opening the paper because it had nothing to say. And that's, you know, that's what's so great about Triad City Beat or, you know, some of the other weeklies is, is they have the time to report and talk about things that are truly important in our community instead of just that sort of daily next person was shot or, you know, how many traffic accidents there were. Speaking of the news and record, it brings the topic, the, the High Point Enterprise. Uh, you know, this, the story in High Point from way back when, from my parents, from people older than my parents, is High Point, and I'm sure Greensboro was in, this, in a similar fashion, High Point was a big factory town. So 
essentially the the factory owners wanted to keep their employees uninformed and wanted to keep them isolated because if they saw greater opportunity or they saw that they were missing out on things in other cities then they wouldn't be willing to work for the wages and they wouldn't be willing to stay in high point and they wanted to keep them away from recreation they wanted them to work and and sleep live close to the factory and, and be all about productivity uh, that mindset has carried forward to today in high point and you'll hear a lot of uh, of older people joke that the wealthy in high point used to laugh at lunch that all oh, you we own the high point enterprise they don't they don't report anything bad on us, and uh, they ha we have them in our back pocket. Well, there was an editor change in the High Point Enterprise over the last three years, and I've noticed a huge difference in their reporting style. That, and I just something recently drew me to pay attention to this even more. It's, there's been a lot of juicy news in High Point over the last two years with the last city council and all the the arguing and the many different things that happened. And I can see High Point Enterprise reaching a little bit to find that again because they've lost it. I feel like they're trying to find it again. And they ran an article about uh, the High Point partners went and visited land in out in the Five Points area of High Point, which is used to be a, a thriving area. It's now a, a big interchange. It would be a meeting point for highways and getting to the airport, and they're looking at a a roundabout that will actually make High Point viable again and getting to the airport, whereas the road was going to bypass and it would uh, make it a lot more difficult to get there. So the article basically was Cynthia Davis, who is a new city council member, criticizing uh, the High Point partners for basically she felt they went around the system, that they should have came to the city council and included them in the full process and Another city council member, Latimer Alexander, made a pretty snide remark in the article. And then the very next day, they had the two of them face-to-face, side-by-side, uh, talking about a lawsuit where Latimer Alexander had actually sued Cynthia Davis for a comment she made on Facebook. I, I remember one time the High Point Enterprise wrote a, an op-ed supporting me for, for when I brought Hopfest to Greensboro and I wrote a, an op-ed basically criticizing High Point for the actions they took for making that happen. And uh, Megan Ward, the editor of High Point Enterprise, pulled me into her office, and she read me emails from Becky Smothers and Judy Mendenhall just ripping the paper apart, ripping me apart, saying that they were going to contact the owners of the newspaper, that she should be fired, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of pressures and how... And I know you're in a different situation now, but from a newspaper perspective, does the editor get to set the personality and the vibe of the newspaper, or is that something that is coming from the ownership in, in some situations? I really can't speak to the High Point Enterprise, and, and we are a, a particularly unique example because um, the three full-time writers, myself included, are also editors, and we are also the owners of the paper. Uh, so we're not the only owners, but we're, I mean, the, everyone that owns our paper uh, founded it with us and works there. So it's a really different model. Uh, no one really gets to tell anyone else what to do. I mean, technically, Brian Clary is the editor-in-chief, and 
but most in, most decisions, even minor ones, are made by the three of us. Um, and I can tell you that that was not my experience with the, the, the last paper that I worked at, but I, I couldn't speak to the High Point Enterprise specifically. And, you know, as Jack mentioned, you all, I would have to, you know, say that I credit you all to a lot of the success that High Point's been able to have in terms of keeping it in the news, keeping it in the public's eye of what's happening there because for so long, no High Point wasn't getting any attention and, and maybe there weren't the things that are happening there now, but from Mark's perspective and from Madeline's perspective, Madeline, you're working on the, the Greenway in Greensboro. Is that correct? Are you part of that? If you're referring to the downtown Greenway, yes. Um, and we are working on that. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, I just feel a little uneducated on exactly what's happening with that. I'm not exactly sure where it goes, what it does. I, I looked at a map today. I'm, I've just been a little bit confused. So can you just kind of walk us through a little bit of where the progress stands and, and the overall objectives of what's happening now? Yeah, the downtown Greenway is a uh, proposed four-mile loop around the center of downtown. And um, it's basically being used to divide central downtown from the rest of the city. It's been in the works since uh, 2000, and um, Action Greensboro uh, has been the driving force uh, behind the downtown Greenway, Um, but it's a public-private partnership. Almost all of the downtown Greenway will be built on public right-of-way in public land, uh, with a few exceptions. Currently, there's about three-fourths of a mile complete, and um, I personally sit on the public art selection panel that helps uh, select artists who uh, we get to commission art all over the downtown Greenway. We're working right now on the third um, art cornerstone. Uh, The downtown Greenway is sort of a square, and so there's four different cornerstones. Each has a different theme, and we're working on uh, commissioning the next group of artists to, to do that project. Action Greensboro has a projected completion date of 2018 and uh, there's a lot of obstacles that still need to be uh, tackled for that to happen but we had a major victory with the Chandler concrete property being sold which was basically the sole survivor of uh, railway use and so um, when that property was sold uh, the railway uh, is no longer being used by any tenants so um we have to work with Norfolk Southern on getting them to abandon that railway and purchase all the right-of-way, basically from Pisgah Church Road all the way to Lee Street to complete, well, Spring Garden, to complete uh, the connection from the A&Y's terminus now all the way to uh, the downtown Greenway. It, it makes sense that that would be a strategy to, to follow the rail lines. It's uh, There was obviously a strategic reason for its placement and its mm-hmm. ease of connectivity. Uh, Mark, from your perspective, our train travel was obviously in the early days was created to move freight, not not people. Is that fair to say? Or Well, you know, I think as, as we built the rail lines across the country, it's probably a little bit of a mix of both, but then it certainly became uh, a driving force in the country's industrialization, you know, moving goods across the country and then that was replaced by trucks and now rail has really had a resurgence um, particularly the passenger rail 
and there's a lot of conflicts between expanding that passenger rail service and the long-standing use of the rails for freight movement, which is where the railroads make their money. So, um, yeah, I think, um, uh, but I think rail is, is a great alternative that a lot of communities are looking at. So in the, in the aspect of the downtown greenways, is that under the same strategy of the rails to trails plan that is often spoke of in other cities? The piece that aligns with the Atlantic Yadkin railway bed is would be a rails to trails project, but that's only about fourth of the overall four mile loop. There's lots of examples of rails with trails, you know, having the, the rail line in right adjacent to, you know, biking and walking paths and them utilizing the same space. Um, what's good about uh, the ANY being on an old railway bed is that, you know, if there ever was a, a push for, you know, multiple communities in Guilford County to, to get Atlantic Yadkin railway bed aligned for rail, um, you know, the easements and the, the ownership of the property would be already secured because of the trail. As far as I know, there's there's not been any real movement in that direction. Our, the city's main focus right now is, is building that greenway connection, allowing for, you know, a, a major increase in active transportation from the northwest side of town all the way into downtown. So the biggest part about the downtown greenway that I didn't mention before is that it's a central hub in our greenway system and it connects multiple neighborhoods many of the major universities multiple areas of entertainment and um, many of our other trails so it's sort of you know connects the dots like a central bus station almost it's where you can connect into all these different uh, aspects so it's been a focus of the city to focus on trails that make that connection even more attractive and and filling in the gaps that allow that interconnectivity all across um, the city. The only thing I find unfortunate about the rail line is that like the right of way is only like 24 feet wide. I mean, it's just like right where the rails were. So there's not really that opportunity for to have some rail as well as a greenway or bikeway, you know, within the same corridor. So I think a streetcar, out that way towards you know up to Lawndale Battleground would be absolutely fantastic uh, for that entire corridor. They but used to have one. There used to be a train that ran from downtown, took people to the military park. Mm-hmm. What would it take to make that happen again? <laughs> money, money, loaded money, question. Money, mm-hmm. money. Literally a loaded question. <laughs> You'd have to fight off all the Greenway users to get yeah. that to happen. <laughs> Are there any any plans or any uh, conversations that happen in regards to how the greenway could be used at night for actual travel, safe travel between destinations? Yeah. The downtown greenway right now is currently open from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. And that, that is a strategic uh, move because basically the police department needed grounds to uh, – keep people from making their homes on the greenway in certain areas and without hours of operation you 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 have no grounds for you know telling people to leave if they're just enjoying you know the the park or the linear trail there i think the ultimate goal is for when the four miles are complete to have it open 24 hours a day and keeping in line with the idea that you know the greenway is um transportation but i think that will come as more users are there and there are more 
it's not as attractive of a place to hang out, you know, and, and sleep if it's it's constantly being used. And um, the goal is as we connect in major pieces and as it's completed, you know, it'll it'll be more like a street and less, you know, and less like a park where no one is. Yeah, especially for the downtown Greenway. I mean, a large part of it is really like a awesome sidewalk. Uh, so like the northern stretch of it is really they're just I mean part of it is already there but it's just, it's like an, it's a much larger sidewalk so you it's not even really at least parts of it you couldn't really say this is closed at night because it's it's the walkway directly in front of the Greenway apartments at Fisher Park for example you, right. that has to be open yeah the five to eleven hours do not apply to the Smith Street section yeah. I should <laughs> I should clarify. In regards to thinking about the connectivity of, of the city and really looking at the Greensboro map system and understanding how everything connects together, there are some places that seem to be difficult to access by public transportation. One of those nooks that I've kind of come to realize, which when you really look at it, walking distance, it's not that big of a challenge, but the Iron Hen area of East Windover. I've looked at connecting to a bus stop from there and there's really not a good way. I mean, walking down Windover, there's not a good way to get to the Church Street or Elm Street stop. And to get to Elm Street from there, you'd have to walk all the way through Lindley Park. So in regards to these trails, uh, is there a possibility that there would be ways to walk from the interior of a neighborhood to a more main thoroughfare that you could catch a bus and further create that connectivity that we're looking for. I think the city, you know, is is looking to address that with our uh, biped plan. In 2006, the city council adopted our bicycle and pedestrian and greenways master plan, which we nicknamed the biped. Um, myself and a group from GDOT have been working on updating that plan. And it basically maps out all of uh, proposed bicycle routes, uh, new sidewalk connections, and greenways and trails throughout the Greensboro metropolitan area. And that plan would, would really help find uh, where sidewalk needs to be to connect neighborhoods to areas that, you know, areas of interest and just boosting uh, the walkability and bikeability of the city overall. Um, don't want to misquote it, but I think uh, GDOT is looking at 100 miles of trails in the next 10 years. That's sort of a goal that they've set for themselves. So the biped is is shaping up to be our roadmap for the future to figure out, you know, how can we better connect neighborhoods to the trails and greenways as well as bicycle routes so that, you know, people can make those connections safely. I, I think you're bringing up a good point, though, Ryan, in that if we think about when we can take the Greenway out of downtown, up Battleground, all the way to the military park, or a public transit route that might actually get me to the Iron Hen, but we don't advertise either mode choice in that manner. You know, on, on the trail side, I think it, the emphasis has historically been more on the recreation side. And, of course, on the transit, it's just all about getting you to work. But, you know, what if we took a different view of it? And I think that's one of the things that you and I have talked about is you have to be able to advertise and show people 
how they can go from point A to point B with different modes. I, you know, I'm sorry, we're too lazy as a society to try to figure it out ourselves. That's true. So any, and today, any technology that you can put in place to make that a easier decision. We use the old example uh, when we're telling our transit story a lot about, you know, instead of just automatically picking up those keys, you know, what if you had a couple choices? Should I take the bike today? No, it might rain in the afternoon, so I'll, so I'll take transit. Oh, but I have a meeting at night, so I have to take the car. But it, automatically, it's grab the keys, get in the car, and go. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because marketing and advertising for the city is always an obstacle. Um, that's not a big budget item in, in our department. And usually that and the arts are the first things that get cut. So, you know, we have a hard time getting the message out there. Um, you know, I, I might have said earlier that I didn't even know that we had the expansive 90-mile system that we have here. But one thing that we're working on right now, which I'm really excited about, is we're hoping to launch a web application using um, some Esri-based software that will make it really easy for people to figure out how to get from A to B using the trail system. It's not Google-based, but it, it's, it works very similar to that. And so it'll be really familiar for people to use. Right now, our uh, maps are, are, you know, siloed PDFs that, you know, it's hard to relate them to one another and really grasp the overall system. So we're hoping in the next couple months to roll that out. And that's really just phase one. And, you know, phase two will definitely incorporate parks and other amenities that, you know, connect those trails together and ultimately, our goal is to have a, a GPS-based mobile application. Now, the web app that we're developing now will be mobile-friendly, but it won't like show you where your GPS location is. So that's where we're trying to get. And I, I would love to hear ideas about how we can get the word out about that information to the public. I, I kind of have two questions in, in regards to, it seems that in one side, you know, you're working with GDOT and you're you all seem to be doing a lot of innovative and interesting things and then I look at GTA in the form of buses and it seems that things aren't changing as fast so from your perspective being a city employee what kind of role does your organization have in the sense of being able to have this strategic plan and to follow a more innovative kind of progressive path and then on the other hand it seems that when it comes to thinking about transportation in different ways it's just there's not the same thought process that I'm hearing from you where does where does that come from either Mark or Madeline you want me to keep you from having the same thing <laughs> I can't really speak to GTA and in their um the way they choose to do things I will say that as a student at UNCG you know the heat buses came online during my college experience and I didn't use it a lot but I did use it a little bit when I was traveling from campus to um, my internship downtown and I thought it was really good um, and I, I still think it, it's good and it probably can be improved I would say that you know it's easy to become entrenched and I'm sure there's a lot of you know things that could be done differently but without the public sort of demanding those changes you know not a lot's going to happen you know one thing I've learned is that if if city council feels that their um, constituents 
you know, want something and need something, then that's where change happens. And so until uh, the public really stands up and says, you know, this is what we want, this is what we need, I don't know if it, if it will happen. Yeah, I just want to add that when I came here as a college student in 2006, I my first introduction to Greensboro public transit of any form was also the heat bus and I would ride it I didn't have a car and I would ride it to get to the friendly center I rode it to get downtown I took it to go to A&T I mean there were a limited number of stops but it's still for what I needed it functioned pretty well and I could be wrong but my sense is that or if my memory serves me several of the colleges pulled out of the heat bus system uh, because of a lack of ridership and I believe that Guilford was one of them but you know, not, I wasn't a journalist then. I wasn't writing about any of this. But uh, my sense was that it, it kind of came online quickly and they gave it a couple of years to test it out. There was probably limited funding. But then it, to, to me, it seemed like it, it went away before they really gave people a chance to get used to using it. And so I, I think that, you know, the, the city employees that I've met in different departments, GDOT included, but, but not limited to, are all pretty sharp, pretty smart folks, um, at least in my ex- the, the, the people that I've interacted with, and I would put most of the blame with city council and the, and the way that it's um, set up, which we've talked about some, but, but uh, uh, the lack of a political will to, to take a stand on certain issues. And I think that it's, I would, I would totally agree that part of it is about constituents asking for things, but some things like Residents in East Greensboro have been asking for better public transit, whether that is sidewalks in on dangerous streets or you know better bus system, et cetera, and they're not being listened to. So part of it is a, a, a lack of political will of the people that are actually running the city and, and not actually listening to, to what folks are saying. And then, and then I think part of it is also folks speaking up more as well. Yeah, Ron, I, I would just add, as and Eric and I mentioned it earlier before we started, and that is priorities, and, and you said it again, too. Now, I think about the group uh, Big Bicycling in Greensboro, and at least from where I sit, I see that they've had a fairly big impact on making bicycling more of a priority and safety improvements in bike lanes. But then, as Eric pointed out, it's not always just – asking uh, and trying to make it a priority sometimes it's who's doing that asking uh, as well and that's something we have to get beyond as well but the other thing I was just going to add is that transportation funding is the most complex thing I've ever run across in my life there is so much money and it is so complex and I think most people would be shocked if they really knew every little piece and thing that was that went on at at transportation advisory committee meetings and things of that nature but at the end of the day it is still very highway and street driven uh the funding and all the conversation and madeline mentioned that you know maps being on, on a pdf uh, my one jab at, at at a lot of places will be that yeah there's a bike ped plan there's a transit plan. There's a street plan. Why isn't there a mobility plan? You know, we're still not looking at all the modes collectively. I'm on the, the stakeholder group for the bike ped plan because I wanted transit to have a voice, even though my voice is regional, at the table. And, it you know, it still really hasn't caught on. There's no one from GTA at the bike ped plan yet. 
every bus trip begins walking or biking. So, you know, why is that? But why is it that we have a thoroughfare plan, a bike ped plan, a transit plan? Why isn't it a mobility plan that really looks deep down and tries to understand how people can travel, the choices that they can have, and whether it's commuting or recreation or, or just life? So we'll keep the conversation going through social media, and I hope that you all will contribute further thoughts as once this episode is released through social media and, and help us keep this conversation going. And um, from many of you all's perspective, how can uh, listeners get engaged in these conversations? How can they learn more about the topics that we're talking about? And how can they get involved in, in making their voice heard? Everybody uh, communicates differently and everyone has different confidence levels in how they want to get involved and how they want their voice heard. So what different ways besides going to city council or besides uh, going through an investigative process of figuring out who to talk to and and going through this system, what's the best direct route that you all see that they can uh, have their voice heard in in, in a meaningful way? I think as far as the city goes, we're really listening to social media. Um, There are real people behind those accounts and um, you know that that's a good place to start I wouldn't suggest ranting and raving because you know that's probably not going to get anywhere but we use uh, our Facebook page we have a Greensboro Trails Facebook page and we try to keep people up to date on public meetings and things like that that's when the biped plan for example will come to the public and they'll have the opportunity to suggest routes or, um, you know, change trailheads or suggest parking in this spot or, you know, I know about this property that might be beneficial to connecting this gap. You know, those are the the grassroots conversations that can really impact, you know, what is proposed moving forward and what actually gets acted on. So I would suggest just tracking down um, whatever particular area you're interested in, see if you can find it on social media and just kind of stay in the loop. There are lots of opportunities in Greensboro for uh, people of all ages to get involved. And I know that uh, the Synergy Young Professionals Group is a good way to, you know, see where the young professionals are, are congregating and, and what's uh, important. And there are different community uh, boards that you can get on. And, you know, they're always looking for people that are passionate. So I, that would be how I would uh, encourage people to get better hooked in and can you explain is greensboro department of transportation a separate organization from the gta or is it the parent of gta i believe gdot is the parent of gta it's like an arm or a leg yeah the the greensboro transit authority so there is a separate board that gta will answer to but of course their funding comes from the city Uh, the public transit director works for the the GDOT director. So there is a relationship there, but there's also some separation, too, if you will, since they're a separate authority. To add to your question about how people can affect change or or get plugged in, I'm glad that you mentioned uh, bicycling in Greensboro, because I think there's a a considerable difference between hearing about something that pisses you off and being reactionary and going and trying to make a change by yourself at that point, or even with a group of people. Not that the, not that I would put that down, but it's just so much harder to affect change once you're once it's at that point. And so I think being part of a 
a group of people where you have more power as a group and trying to be part of a proactive solution to implement the changes you want to see is a, is an excellent way to actually get results, which was which is the goal. So being proactive and then all, and being engaged, being informed. I mean, that's like the whole reason I work for a newspaper is I think people need to know what's going on, and I think that they should be reading it regularly. Not and not just us, but no, but knowing what's what's going on in their their city in general, uh, and and um, deciding to be engaged in your community at whatever level that is equips you to be able to have those conversations or to implement change in in some regard so whether that means something as small as like bringing that up as a topic of conversation when you're talking to your friends that is a minor way that can start to have a ripple effect or an impact of of like raising something as an issue you don't have to be raising it to city council you know for you to express yourself or or to get your point across um, that is certainly one way to do it, but I would really just encourage people to be engaged and proactive in a way that is sustained and not just on one-off issues or, or to feel like there aren't ways to make change because I've seen, I mean, I, my whole job is like talking to, di- to different people that have been able to, to affect change on, at some level or another, and some of those are in city government, and but most of those aren't. A lot of those are people with great ideas that are trying to work to make those happen so I think one of the one of the things I I mean I know I'm rambling at this point but one of the things that I love about the triad is that it is a the kind of place where you can actually put your ideas into practice it's small enough that you can have an impact big enough that you actually have something to work with Mm -hmm. and it's affordable too so it's it's easier than most other cities that I know of to to actually start trying to do these different things. I mean, the, the the stuff Ryan that you've been able to do are are great examples of that. I mean, a huge part of that is your your drive and your ability to connect people to these different things, and a part of that is where you are. Uh, and so it's definitely been true for me. I could not have started a newspaper in a large a larger city. Um, so if there, are th- uh, yeah, if there are things that you want to see happen, you just have to make them happen, and preferably find a group of people to make it happen with you. Yeah, I would say that definitely holds true for the city in my experience. Most of uh, the most important things that have gone on, at, at least in, in my experience, have been initiated by single individuals. Big is a, is a good example of that. Um, you know, that, That's not necessarily a single individual, but that's a small group of people who have been vocal and connected and just been, you know, always there and been supportive and been you know, constantly reminding the city of, you know, what they want and what's important to them. And another good example is the um, Fat Tire Mountain Biking Society. Greensboro wouldn't be where it is today with our mountain biking system if it wasn't for basically one guy who started a relationship with our department. And um, 2015 marks 20 years of that relationship. It wasn't. It didn't end up being just him. You know, he got people to come in and help, and it's grown over time, and it's you know really been a great thing for the city. But we wouldn't have best urban mountain biking trails designation without that group getting together and being passionate about just one thing. You know, but it's impacted us for the better. So there's definitely ways to find your niche and you know just kind of like grab hold and don't let go. <laughs> Thank you all so much for being guests. We really appreciate having you all on. And uh, stay tuned and uh, keep the conversation going with 
at Create Your City, C R E A T E Y R C T Y on Instagram, Facebook, Google Plus, and YouTube. And uh, we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. you.